Welcome to the Hoops Royalty Podcast. I'm King Jemison alongside, but sadly, not right next to Carnivacatrage. And today, we're heartbroken. As the Grizzlies suffered a crushing overtime defeat last night in Game 4 that put them in a 3-1 series hole to the Lakers. But dark times breed bright ideas, and Karna's got one for us today. Karna, what is your Game 4 Royal Decree? My Game 4 Royal Decree is that it would be malpractice, and honestly, it should be litigated if this happens, if Dylan Brooks is still on the Grizzlies roster next year. Dylan Brooks has shot 22% from three this year. He has had foul trouble all through the year. And he has a fourth lowest effective field goal percentage in the playoffs. Essentially, he is a huge black hole on the floor that doesn't know that he's a black hole offensively. And the defensive value that offsets the offensive value that he's draining from the team is just not there. We saw LeBron handle him this year. And though he provides defensive value, there's no denying that. It does not offset the offensive value that he has sucked from this team. And in fact, his field goal percentage year over year since his first year in 2017 and 2018 has gone down from 44% to 39% this year. With three-point makes slightly ticking up, but not nearly enough to offset the drastic decrease in three-point percentage. The data points to the fact that he thinks he's a much better three-point per- uh, shooter than he actually is. And we can see that through the eye test. He's just jacking up shots and not providing the defensive value on the other side. Not only that, I think he's become a distraction for the team. I think they can move on, get a more mature player. And it seems like this is a larger theme, too, that we need to talk about, which is the Grizzlies desperately need a vet that calms the team down, that provides the emotional center, an Andre Iguodala, a Kyle Lowry, someone who can calm the team down, not antagonize the other team in a way that isn't Draymond Green-esque, if we're being honest. So I think Dylan Brooks needs to be gone next year, and there are viable, viable options out there in the, in the trade market, since the Grizzlies have quite a bit of trade capital, but not only that, in free agency. I've seen OG Ananobi's uh, name been thrown around. Kyle Kuzma's name been thrown around. We need a three that can score and can play both sides of the ball, and he can only play one, which is honestly, if we're in this NBA, less valuable. What do you think, King? I'm going to half stamp it, half veto, okay? Okay, here we go. I don't think it's malpractice to bring back Dylan Brooks because – this team doesn't really have other good wing defenders. Desmond Bain is growing into that, and I absolutely love the possession late in the fourth quarter yesterday that ended up leading to a a take foul on John Morant, where he stood up Anthony Davis on the perimeter, and eventually that leads to a turnover and going the other way. He's getting there as a perimeter defender, but he's still not at Dylan Brooks' level, not at the elite level you need to win in the playoffs. I'm actually not sure after this playoffs if Dylan Brooks is an elite perimeter defender, but he's the closest that the Grizzlies have got. So that's the side I'm vetoing, is that it would be malpractice to bring him back. But what I am fully stamping is they need to look for somebody better. And we already know they did that at the trade deadline 
when they offered four first round picks for o- for for Mikael Bridges, three first round picks for OJ OG Ananobi. Both of those guys, if their teams decide, you know what, after somewhat disappointing either playoff misses or playoff exits, that we're ready to blow it up, then I'm making those phone calls again. I'll even tack another pick on top of both of those, okay? Because those two guys are perfect fits, particularly Bridges. Um, and there are other options as well. I really thought it was funny that Kyle Kuzma tweeted last night, Grizz need one more bucket getter. And multiple Grizzlies people responded, how, how, about, how about you? I mean, you'd be perfect. He would be amazing because he's another guy who can play elite wing defense, but at shoot and score at a much higher efficiency and yeah, that 22% three-point shooting in the playoffs for Dylan Brooks is causing such a massive hole in the Grizzlies' offense. Because if you just look at the tape of the fourth quarter in overtime last night, the Lakers are packing the paint. They're packing the paint and daring John Moran to drive. And yeah, they're going to hang off on Desmond Bain. They'll, they'll shade towards Jaron Jackson, both of them much better three-point shooters than Dylan Brooks. But they're basically giving Dylan Brooks the Jared Vanderbilt treatment. Mm. Or to throw it back to old-time Grizz fans, the Tony Allen treatment. They're saying every time you shoot the ball on a possession, that's a good possession for our defense. You can't have a guy like that on the floor closing games in the playoffs. The Grizzlies have to find somebody better. So I have a comment and then a question. Uh, or two questions. So I, I think what's really telling about Dylan Brooks's offense is that year over year, his three-point percentage has generally trended downwards while his three-point attempts have trended upwards, which means he feels responsible to shoot not great shots for him, which is not a good mentality for Dylan Brooks to have. So I think the offensive hole, you're taking high-leverage shots, high-value shots that just aren't going in for Dylan Brooks. And I think that's an offensive hole like we both talked about. Those two trends kind of tell me that that data tells a story that Dylan Brooks feels like he needs to shoot three-pointers at a higher rate than he did when he first entered the league. So it seems like he might be not understanding his role properly as a perimeter defense, as a lockdown guy. That's one. My next question for you, King, and this is, I think you're going to say yes to this. The Grizzlies are in win-now mode. Would you agree? Absolutely. If you don't have the window open right now, when is it ever going to be? I agree. Because we already know that John Morant is not going to, we suspect he's not going to be a player who's going to dominate for the next decade. Yeah. You've probably got his absolute peak in the next three years or so. Mm-hmm. I, I completely so you need agree. to maximize these next three years. I agree. Is Dylan Brooks in the yeah. next three so years? they're in win now mode. Yeah. Is Dylan Brooks in the next three years going to be a serviceable role player on a championship team? No, the way he plays right now. Just the mentality he has the way he plays right now. Unless he got on a team surrounded by vets who said, you don't have a role here unless you buy into what we're asking you to do, which is play defense and take only wide open shots and sometimes not even those. Basically become a wing version of P.J. Tucker. Unless he's that kind of player, I don't see how he is going to be a championship role player. Yeah, so I, I think I, I, I think it's been proven through this last regular season and this last, well, f- from what we've seen in the playoffs this year, he can't do that. So in my opinion, if we answer those two questions the way that we did, 
it Dylan Brooks has to be moved on from. And I think there's another, there's other viable options. And I agree with you. I think it would be, I I think maybe malpractice was a strong word. I I think it is, but I I can understand why um, you would have veto that. But I, I think that looking at the options out there, there's enough options to replace what Dylan Brooks does effectively on defense, maybe not completely replace him, but get pretty dang close that would add so much more offensive value, make the offense more dynamic, help jaw, help Jaron, give them more space. And I, I think that those need to be heavily pursued. And I think it would be foolish for where the Grizzlies are right now for the front office, not to make those moves, especially with the draft capital they have. So um, with yeah. that in mind, King, I want some general takes from game four. What did you see on the floor? What would, what maybe some critiques for Jenkins? I know the Twitter space was a buzz, you know, Jenkins supporters, Jenkins, Jenkins haters. Um, you know, what was your kind of thoughts? Crystallize it for us. I was proud of the Grizzlies in the sense that they looked like they were about to have another mini version of game three in the first half. Um, they found themselves down 14 the first half, just playing terribly offensively, going into a shell. Missing open looks, yes, but not even generating open looks on most possessions. Turning the ball over, not getting back on defense. Just looking passive. So unlike the Grizzlies that we've come to know and love over the past few seasons. But they snapped out of that, and they started to play Grizzlies basketball for for most of the second quarter, third quarter, and the first part of the fourth quarter. They were getting good looks. They were getting downhill. That was the the most impressive thing. I love the return of downhill Dez. Finally in this Mm -hmm. series, Desmond Bain could get to the basket. They were getting offensive rebounds. They they, They won the offensive rebound battle in this game, which if you told me they did that in any game with the Lakers this season, I would say, oh, the Grizzlies had to win, right? Because that is the Lakers' biggest advantage is their size. They should crush the Grizzlies on the offensive boards. They did it. The Grizzlies did a good enough job of creating their own second chances. So in some ways, you played Grizzlies basketball. But in other ways that aren't so good, you played Grizzlies basketball as well. First of all, this was a return to the Grizzlies pre-trade deadline who couldn't make any three-pointers. And part of that was you only play Luke Kennard for uh, 13 minutes. We, We can talk about that longer. And second of all, the half-court issues that were so big before the trade deadline were so big last year, particularly in the playoffs, those reared their ugly head in the fourth quarter in overtime when the Grizzlies just could not score against a set defense. I mean, in fourth quarter in overtime, basically their only buckets were coming in transition. And it's hard to generate transition at the end of games. You have to be able to score in the half-court. In the playoffs, for some reason, the way that teams can just shade towards Ja, the way that seems like some guys who are so reliable for the rest of the game, i.e. Desmond Bain, can't make shots, it's just putting the Grizzlies in such a bind where they feel like they have to be up big entering those final five minutes. Um, Otherwise, I, I, at least as a Grizzlies fan, don't feel safe with any kind of slim lead in the fourth quarter. Yeah, and let's talk about that fourth quarter a little bit more. I think, you know, there was a lot of disparity. You see Jaw make the right play in the right moment sometimes and then make the exact wrong play in the moment, especially with that injured hand going up and not passing it, going up on LeBron, which was a blocking foul. Um, But 
See, he's sliding his feet there. Um, but you see him not go to Tillman in that moment, right? You see him trying to make that hero play. And really, you know, if he hits it, if he dunks over the King, maybe the series is over. Maybe the Lakers are so demoralized that, you know, they, they never, they don't just show, they don't show up for the next, you know, however many games. But if you make the right play there, right, you win that game, right? You win game four in the state or Staples Center, Crypto Arena, whatever. And I think the fact that he did not make that play was very telling about some other issues within the team. Maybe it, it being too jaw-focused, even though Desmond Bain had a great night and I had to eat some of my words. They look great with jaw and Des out there. Um, what do you think game five looks like from a clutch time perspective? Do you think that the lineups looked right? Do you, th- or let's go back to game four real quick. Do you think the lineups looked right? Do you think the matchups were favorable to the Grizzlies? Um, and, and talk about what your thought process would be in, in that last couple moments. I don't want to just jump on the Grizz Twitter bandwagon, but I think you got to have Kennard out there at the end of the game. If you're going to say Brooks is not going to guard LeBron, which they didn't have Brooks guarding LeBron at the end of this game. They had Tillman because Tillman in this series has been objectively the better LeBron defender. And this might as well be a Xavier Tillman podcast at this point. Given that Desmond Bain scored 36, but somewhat inefficiently, I still think Xavier Tillman was, at least at his role, the best Grizzlies player on the court last night. He was doing exactly what you want him to do, including defensively on LeBron. Um, So if you're not going to have Dylan guarding LeBron, why is he there at the end? Why is he there to allow another Lakers defender to sit in the paint and wait for Jaw to drive, wait for Desmond to drive? Because frankly, that's what where he was making his money was either on mid-range pull-ups or getting to the basket. So I would have seen Luke Kennard out there at the end. I definitely would have played him more than 13 minutes. Besides that, it's hard to say what to do. Like, I liked David Roddy's minutes in this game. Um, I liked the way he was playing, but he was still a minus 10. He was still 3 of 10 from the field. It, it feels questionable to have given him 20 minutes in the first place. You know, Tyus Jones, once again, just... This is the second year in a row... In a big playoff series, Warriors series last year, Lakers series this year, where Tyus is giving a major disappearing act, where he looks like a backup point guard and not like a key part of your rotation as he is for the rest of the season. And, and so, you know, I don't really know what you can do with lineups outside of giving Kennard some of Brooks's minutes. I don't know why on a night where Brooks was clearly off offensively, 4 of 11, including 1 of 7 from 3, on a night where Brooks was not his usual self defensively, why he's playing 41 minutes and Kennard is playing 14. Um, yeah. I, that would be my one lineup issue. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, I completely agree with you. Um, I, I think that, you know, you want to see more Kennard there. Even some Conchar would be fine. A guy who can get you rebounds uh, in critical moments. A guy who's high energy off the bench. Uh, again, I was fine with Roddy. I think his physicality brings a lot of, of dynamism to the defense that, um, you know, uh, Dylan Brooks just didn't have that night. Um, that being said, I want to shout out my big boy, Xavier Tillman, him moving his feet. That's, that's a, that's a big, big plus for big boys everywhere. Huge fan. Love seeing it. Um, I actually want to bring this up. Um, and, and I want to talk about 
just the inability to make certain shots for the Grizzlies. Uh, a Twitter account called Shot Quality, they use predictive analytics to uh, visualize how games should go, basically. And actually, the simulated score shows the Grizzlies winning just based off the shot quality that they were taking, meaning that you know they were taking more high-percentage shots, but they were just missing them. Do you see that issue, that disparity, right? High-quality shots, a lot of high-leverage misses. Is that a Jenkins problem, or do you just chalk that up to the players? Maybe the moment's too big. Maybe crypto arena's a little too loud. What do you chalk that up to? I think the the chalking it up to a big moment has a lot of truth to it. Yeah. Because when I, I go back and I think about last year's playoffs and this year in big games and now this year's playoffs. So let's talk about those high leverage moments. I think of the Warriors series. How in game one and game four, you led in the fourth quarter and you lost because you couldn't execute late. And that included just missing open shots. I think about this year um, in the Lakers game back in January or in the Sixers game right after the All-Star break. These playoff atmosphere road games where you lead late in the fourth quarter, but you lose because you can't close the game. That includes missing open shots. And now, once again, here we are in the playoffs. Game four is right there for the taking on the road in L.A. You lose after holding a fourth quarter lead because you can't close the game. You can't make open shots. This is the youth of the team showing up. And I don't know how that changes. I don't know if actually bringing in a veteran automatically changes that. I think it's more so about the players themselves growing up um, and – People talk a lot about in the NBA about scar tissue, playoff scar tissue needs to build up before you're ready to go on that long run. And as a Grizzlies fan, I didn't want to believe that to be true because I wanted the Grizzlies to be that team who breaks through right away. But I'm afraid that they're more of the scar tissue variety where maybe they're like the Celtics, and this is something I plan on writing and exploring in the offseason, is that the Celtics had this run of pretty good years, not always not, not getting all the way in the playoffs. And then you look, they had a really disappointing 2021 season, 2021 playoffs. And then they jumped to the finals next year because maybe they finally built up enough scar tissue. They were ready to win in those closing minutes, those closing moments. Um, but Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr., those two guys in particular, and frankly, John Morant this season, if you go back to last season, John Morant is extremely clutch. This season, he really hasn't been. But Desmond Bain and Jaron Jackson Jr. need to learn how to close games offensively. We've seen them do it against bad opponents in the regular season, but when I've watched them this season with Jaw out and them having to be the primary options, they were great for 90% of the game, but in the clutch, it was a struggle. And when I've seen them with or without Jaw in these big leverage games, um, these playoff-type games, they're just not hitting the shots you expect them to make in the fourth quarter. And I, I want to drill down on one person because I expect so much more of him, and that's Jaron Jackson. You, Triple J, you can't – 14 points this game, 13 points last game. Jimmy Butler said this in the interview, actually, post-game after dropping 50-plus on, on the Bucks' heads. He said the, the championships are won on the road. You can't drop 31 at the FedEx Forum and then expect – or expect things handed to you in, in, in at the Staples Center or, or the Crypto Arena. 
13 and 14 points is unacceptable for a guy with his physical tools with a guy who can get the ISO isolation points that he wants. He can't, he was missing layups, putbacks. He went 0 for four for the three point land. He had a, he looked out of sorts. The only value he added in any sense was 14 rebounds and, and five blocks, actually five blocks. He was interior defense, the, the in, depoy that we know and love. Right. But the issue is he needs to transition in big games to the offensive stalwart. We need a guy who can get a bucket when Jaws either off the floor or that hand is hurting. Dez is struggling. Tyus is struggling. Your role players are struggling to hit shots. You need that consistent internal presence that can go get you a bucket. And honestly, in the last game, Xavier Tillman, in some of these games, Xavier Tillman has looked more reliable than Jaron Jackson Jr., so that is infinitely worrying for me. This guy we talked about in our first podcast is a guy that can get MVP votes, right? He cannot disappear in these big games. 13 and 14 points from a guy who's as physically gifted as he is and has as much in his bag on the isolation as he does is unacceptable. And honestly, if I'm the front office and I'm Taylor Jenkins, I'm sitting him down. I'm saying that because this 14, 13, 18 in the last three games is just not what needs to happen for us to take this, what will be a hard fought series. Um, the disappearing out from Tyus and Dez, those are troubling too. But Jaron Jackson Jr., we can't win another, even if we were to come back in this series and, and beat the Lakers, if he has the same performance against the Warriors and Kings, whether it's Kevon Looney or, or DeMontis Sabonis, you know, he can hold them defensively, but if he can't score on them consistently, two not great defensive bigs, then we're going to have – the series will not be won, even in the next round. So I expect more from Jaron Jackson Jr. I hope he will turn the series around. I think he's the X factor coming into the next game, which we will talk about in just a second or get your perspective on in just a yeah. second. And, and before uh, you do, yeah, let me let me turn that back on you real quick on, on mm. Triple J. So – I'm going to defend him for a second. I do agree that he had an offensive disappearing act last night. The most troubling thing to me is he missed all four of his threes. This is something we've seen way too much in big games. I think back to game four and game six in the playoffs last year against the Warriors. Again, without Jaw, you need him to score. And in those games, he did score some inside, but he just could not hit his threes. And again, we see that in a big playoff road game. But he made the play of the game late in the fourth quarter when Hachimura is driving. Hachimura, who is also known as Grisbane, uh, he's, he's been absolutely torching us for, for three games um, prior. He's driving to the rim, looks like, uh, here's where they take the lead and it might be over. Well, Jackson stands him up with his fifth block of the game and you're going the other way for, for the Dez go-ahead bucket. So I thought his defensive presence finally showed up. He had not looked like the defensive player of the year to that point in the series, and finally he did. And on the other hand, I think inside, he's getting fouled and not getting the calls that a borderline all-NBA player deserves. The whistle that he gets versus the whistle Anthony Davis gets is night and day. It's ridiculous that they're not officiating Jaron Jackson Jr. offensively like the star that he is. I think finally this year, refs are not rushing to call fouls on Jaron when he can test shots. He's earned that defensive whistle. But on the offensive end, he's getting hacked. He's getting pulled. 
and they're not getting any calls, and that's affecting his efficiency inside the arc. And he, and he's a good free throw shooter too. So him yeah. getting to the line more would be a huge boost to the Grizzlies' offense. I yeah, I completely uh, see where you're coming from. I think that is largely out of the Grizzlies' control. What is in the control oh, of, of Jenkins and the coaching staff is going back to that ISO as many times as possible. Because in that ISO, he was less efficient in this game. He had Roy Hachimura many times in the ISO and just missed that little jump hook that he usually hits. And 0 for 4 from three-point land. You want this guy to stretch the floor. He can't if he's missing every three-point. Those three-pointers were not really contested either. They were quality shots. Um so, but I think we both agree that Jaron Jackson Jr. has this issue, but I, I, I take your point. I think once the whistle starts coming, he's able to see a couple go from the free throw line, you know, go in and, and really find that stroke, especially early in the game. That would be beautiful. And I think that maybe solves some of that disappearing act that we're seeing. He sees a couple go in, he kind of gets in the flow of the game. And um, I, I see maybe Jaron Jackson Jr. as that as an avenue for him to kind of have a big game from the free throw line. Um, maybe we get hack a Jaron pretty soon here. Um, so thoughts for game five predictions. I, I think let's kind of transition into what we forward looking stuff. Let's get out of the bad mentality. We testing is almost over for us teachers. Let's have a good mentality. Game five. What are we looking for? What are you positive about? If this can go anything like Game 5 versus the Warriors last season when the Grizz were down 3-1, then we're going to be partying on a Wednesday night because I think the Grizzlies are going to respond. They have, in the past, responded when their backs are truly against the wall, um, and they have, in the past, won home playoff games. Um, I expect to see the Grizzlies come out with that Game 2 energy where they are winning every loose ball, they're getting out and running with turnovers. They're crashing the offensive glass. And hopefully, because you're at home, you're not having a historically bad three-point shooting performance like they did last night. 9 of 42 is not historically bad, but, man, 21% in the playoffs with the amount of open threes they had is feels historically bad. So I'm, I'm expecting a Grizzlies win. I have no confidence in their ability to bring this thing to Game 7, though, because LeBron in a closeout game at home, we saw him turn it on in the fourth quarter in overtime in a way that he has in all series, and I, I'm afraid that's going to be the LeBron we see throughout all of Game 6 if the Grizzlies can get there. Um, so I'm thinking that the series is going to end Lakers in 6, but I'm taking the Grizzlies by double digits tomorrow. That's a very interesting take. I have not lost the faith. Um, I think I firmly believe that there's been, we've improved every game this series since, well, that, well, not improved every game, but like we've improved from game three to game four. I expect us to improve in game five. I think Jaws hands getting better. I believe this, I'm, I will say Lakers in seven because I agree that LeBron will show up in game seven. I think he's been saving himself, which is scary to see because on that play, he, that final play in the regular, um, in, in the regular time, he drives past everyone like they're not there and lays it up over Depoy, which was crazy to watch at age, at tw year 20 was insane to watch. But I, I think Lakers in seven, 
But my X factor is Jaron. If Jaron can get going, have a 25-point game in game uh, five, have another 20-plus game in game six, we're talking game seven. I think the edge goes to the Lakers because of a lack of veteran presence. But I think we can get there. I think we can get there. I think we're looking at a game seven. I think we're looking at a, a very exciting game seven um, that goes the Lakers way, unfortunately. Let's transition away from the Grizzlies. I think... Grizzlies. Go ahead. Yeah. I was going to say an obligatory Grizzlies podcast thing to say, this is not over. And this is, it's, it's never. And we've said all along, if the Grizzlies can extend the series that favors them, LeBron did play extremely heavy minutes. He did give effort on both ends in a way we haven't seen all series. I mean, LeBron played yeah. 45 minutes, had 22 points, 20 rebounds. I mean, that's, that is crazy. I mean, uh, let me tell you, he Ken, is old. There, we, yeah, we, there's we not, that, but he, he did not yeah. look, he did not look old. There's not a cold tub cold enough in the world to get past year 20, baby. And that's what we're counting on. There's not a cold tub cold enough in the world. Um, but let's transition a little away from the Grizzlies. I think there's a lot of exciting action going on. Well, we're still going to deal with the Grizzlies a little bit, but there's a young buck out in Sacramento who's making his name against the Warriors right now, and I think he's worth a discussion, especially in relation to Ja. So I'm going to pose this question because I saw it on Twitter. Our mutual friend Jay and I talked about it recently. Ja versus De'Aaron. Who would you start your franchise with? I'm starting my franchise with John Morant, and this is not to sound like a Grizzlies homer, but my reasons are this. Number one, Ja is younger. You're looking at John Morant in his fourth season. You're looking at De'Aaron Fox in his sixth season. So when you're looking at what John Morant's doing in his 23-year-old season, what De'Aaron Fox is doing at his 25-year-old season, you can't compare those apples to apples. You expect that John Morant is going to get better over the next two years. Unless he has catastrophic injury, his three-point percentage is going to improve. He is going to become a more efficient finisher, probably going to become a better passer, probably going to become a smarter defender. I mean, you see guards all the time go through this transition where they start out as kind of a turnstile, but in building up their lower body strength um, and and finding out ways to create turnovers, they become better defenders over the course of their career. And, I mean, even if you look at this year, the stats don't exactly tell a clear story that De'Aaron Fox is the better player. What you what you like in Fox is that he is a better three-point shooter and a better defender. But what I'm taking in John Morant is this intangible leadership quality that comes from on the, on the court and then extends off the court as well. And John Morant as a leader is, this is not a narrative people are telling anymore, but let's just look at this guy's first four NBA seasons. He joined a team that had been tanking for two years prior, had basically won 20 games the two seasons prior to his arrival. He takes that team and immediately brings them to the play-in game. And had there not been the bubble shutdown, they probably would have been in the playoffs his very first season. He just infused the franchise with energy that it had not had since the heart and the height of the grit and grind era. And then the next year, they 
win in San Francisco to reach the playoffs via the plan. The next year after that, they become the two seed, win a playoff series. The next year after that, they endure injury after injury and off-court drama after off-court drama and are once again in the playoffs. And while the story is being told that that is a Grizzlies franchise story, and it is, of course, I think John Morant is the biggest part of that story. Even when he's off the court, the energy, the charisma that he brings to the franchise as a whole is what has brought the Grizzlies from this lottery team that they were in the two years prior to his arrival to one of the best teams in the NBA. And also, I mean, even if you just look at this year, He's averaging more points. He's averaging more assists. He is doing it at less efficiency, but at a higher usage because the Kings have another offensive hub in DeMontis Sabonis. So if you're saying you drop John Morant or drop De'Aaron Fox on the same franchise, John Morant is going to outperform him, and John Morant's team is going to outperform De'Aaron Fox's team. So this is my argument. I I think... You talk about that leadership quality, and and I think that's a point taken, but I I also would argue that that era that you were talking about of transitioning out of this kind of the doldrums of the NBA to the play-in game is not just because of John Morant. I think John Morant is emblematic of a larger trend that a lot of NBA front offices have noticed. And that's the Grizzlies are acting faster and smarter than a lot of other teams. Jaron Jackson Jr. is part of this revitalization, even Dylan Brooks. Um, So I think the player development of the Grizzlies as well as a front office of the Grizzlies have played maybe a larger role than John Morant. Well, maybe not a larger role, but just as big a role as John Morant has and revitalizing this team. That being said, I've got to go with my Houston guy, De'Aaron Fox, and I'll tell you why. One, I do think he's a, he's a much better three. He's decidedly a better three point shooter than John Morant is, uh, and that game is part has developed. Not only that, he has had more steals per game than John Morant, and has he has struggled with on ball defending, but off ball defending, he has been solid. And I think there is a a similar leadership quality to that De'Aaron Fox provides that John Morant kind of uses in flash. De'Aaron Fox is a much more quiet player, a player who is able to use the levers of the game more properly and pass the ball more efficiently. I think De'Aaron Fox makes DeMontis Sabonis better, but as the research, as the research we've talked about, sometimes John Morant doesn't make Jaron Jackson Jr. better. Um, If you look, De'Aaron Fox, when De'Aaron Fox and DeMontis Sabonis are both on the floor, DeMontis Sabonis' points per game increase. There is an inverse effect when John Morant is on the floor and Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain, their points per game and their efficiency in scoring. So I think you see De'Aaron Fox has that ability to make players around him better. And I think one thing we've seen over the last couple of championship runs from teams is that you are going to have to have role players be effective and fit in properly. And I think De'Aaron Fox is a much more plug-and-play guy than John Morant, whereas De'Aaron Fox can play both roles. He can be the star of the team, a guy who can get to the rim and finish, a guy who can shoot three-pointers, a guy who can be a role player at times when DeMontis Sabonis needs to be a star. John Morant needs a ball. He needs to be the star. He needs to be the primary scorer. 
I think Darren Fox's flexibility, plasticity in the offense provides a much better starting point for a franchise. And that's why I'm going with my Houston boy, Darren Fox. Your point was about him making Sabonis is well taken. About making Sabonis better is, is well taken. But let's not forget the fact that before Sabonis arrived, Darren Fox was on a perennial lottery team. The yeah. team with the longest playoff drought in NBA history. So he arrived on a team where when, when I watched the Kings, even before Sabonis was there, I'm like, this team has some talent. They've got some good players. But Fox alone wasn't enough to lift them over that next hump. I mean, John Morant took the Grizzlies to the playoffs in his second season, and Jaron Jackson Jr. missed basically that entire season. And Desmond Bain was a rookie playing like 15 to 20 minutes a game that season. His top running mate was Jonas Valanciunas, who has since gone to the Pelicans and shriveled. So I think John Morant does make his teammates better. In fact, I know for a fact he does. And I think he makes his team as a whole better than De'Aaron Fox but, ever but, could. And th- there's something intangible there with the way John Morant plays. We know like his dunks, his highlight plays, they take the air out of the, out of the other team's sails. Um, but th- there's something there with the way he elevates a team that we have not yet seen from Fox because Fox needed another star to come alongside him. Ja has done it on his own. I but see to say that he's done it on his own I think belays the point that he Jaron Jackson Jr. and Desmond Bain have emerged oftentimes despite him the numbers bear that out right it, even in this season so forget forget that for a second forget the past which is important but let's talk about this season right where we but they both players currently are right if we look at the stats as they are today the role players in the Grizzlies organization have been effective when Jaw is not on the floor. When De'Aaron Fox is not on the floor, DeMontis Sabonis' points per game drastically decrease. And I think that's more of a testament to how Sabonis might be one-dimensional without De'Aaron than it more is about De'Aaron being one-dimensional. So I, I think your point is taken. I, I think the flashy plays and I think the face of the franchise and the face of the league, you want that guy for your city, and you want that guy for your franchise. He's going to sell a bunch of jerseys. Um, But I think De'Aaron is a guy that can lead you to a championship. He has a Kyle Lowry effect leadership. I Maybe I'm a huge Kyle Lowry fan. Maybe maybe we should talk about Kyle Lowry versus Jaw. But, like, I I firmly believe that – I also think the trend upwards has been heartening, right? The guy started – at 12 points per game. Yeah, you're right. He wasn't a star immediately when he walked into the league like Jaw was, but the guy went from uh, on one of the some of the worst teams in NBA history. He went from 12 to 17 points per game to 21 points per game to 25 points per game, and he's only trended up. Whereas Jaw has proven that he has volatility, he is not as dynamic of a scorer, which I think if we're looking five, 10 years from now, which when I say dynamic of a score, I mean shooting-wise. I mean at, at all three levels. Um, what I would say, though, is I think De'Aaron Fox's game translates better in the five to ten years. I think one thing that's been proven through Russell Westbrook and a lot of these super athletic guys is that they fade quickly. And you rely on shooting, uh, a, a dynamic scoring bag, 
ability to make players better over time um, in every season and every type of player. Those are the things that translate to not just like one championship, a flash in the pan, a couple of MVP or rookie of the year. Those are guys that win you championships for years on end. I'm not saying the Warriors are there yet. I'm just saying De'Aaron Fox is a guy that can do that. Um, He's a guy that can score on three levels, get you a bucket when you need it. We see that with the clutch player of the year. He's a guy that's game translates, I think, better than Jaws in the next five, 10 years, right? Is he going to be like a 35-year-old superstar? Probably not. But is he going to be a 35-year-old guy that can get you 12, 15 points a game? Maybe. I mean, he doesn't just rely on quickness is also true. I think De'Aaron Fox has been – the quickness thing is overstated, right? Like, yeah, he's quick, but that's not the only way he he needs to get uh, points, right? Hit me with it, So you're saying that the guy who has the most 45-point playoff games – in a player 23 years or younger is a less dynamic scorer than a guy who's played in four playoff games. Okay. All right. All right. The, the, that, so, that, the 45 so point De'Aaron game Fox, thing doesn't, the 45 point game thing is meaningless, right? Like what? So <laughs> like that, just because he can drive to the rim as many times a game from age 23 to I'm assuming 28 doesn't mean anything. Russell Westbrook had, as many counting stats as you could possibly have in an MVP season, he did nothing in the playoffs. So, like, the counting stats, again, don't really mean anything to me. I think, like, that I, I'm not saying he's not a dynamic scorer. I'm not saying John Morant's not a dynamic scorer. I'm saying that that stat is meaningless to me because it's like, what, what's his record in those games, by the way? Is he not one and two in those games? His record is one and he's one and two in those games. Come, come on, man. A Utah <laughs> come on. Season. Like what are we talking about? Okay, man? Like, the other one is is a is is a forty five point game, forty seven actually. That he single handedly won a playoff but, game against the Warriors. Yeah, I mean so that's let's see awesome. Darren Fox get to the playoffs multiple years in a row. Let's see him continue to has Darren Fox had a player a prime has. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead. Finish. Let Let's see him continue to develop as a primary ball handler. And, you know, his assists per game are significantly lower than John Morant's right now. He's not as high usage a player. So let's see him have to take on that same kind of role and see if he too can lead a team to the playoffs I, I think year he after can. year. I think we're I think seeing the teams it right are now. built to continue to succeed. Yeah. I, I think I, I think well, the I'm just surprised. I, I think the forty five point game thing is kind of meaningless, right? If you're one and two in those games, that's actually kind of proving my point. It's like you're not dynamic enough of an offensive player to win those games, right? John Morant yesterday did not look like a dynamic scorer. He did actually in his losing effort, again, in his in the losing effort, 45 plus point game, he was able to hit threes and big shots. But I think it like the 40, like you can have as many 45 points game, 40, 45 point games as you want, right? I think Russell Westbrook has bear, bared out that counting stats are not as important as how a team has chemistry around one player. And I think De'Aaron Fox provides a lot more plasticity and flexibility in a team's chemistry as they make a playoff run than John Morant does. And I think that is much more valuable to me than 45-point games. <laughs> it just is. Especially when you want, when you go one and two in those games and you have a losing record. You can win... Look, those 45-point games are a microcosm of, of John Morant's ability to be a microwave but, that De'Aaron Fox has not yet proven. And yeah, I'd rather I'd rather player. have a guy and get me twenty five. Has better ra- scoring around him. 
but I'd rather have a guy that you think he has better scoring around him right now. Absolutely. The the king the Kings have better scores. Around. You think Davion the have Mitchell a better team fully healthy? Oh well, hold on. You think Desmond Bain, Jaron Jackson Jr. have more have less potential? Can you against versus Demontis Sabonis? And Harrison Barnes. Let's call those the other two. Keegan the two Murray, next best players. Harrison. No, Barnes, but let's no no. no. Keegan Murray's Malik a rookie. Le, Keegan Murray's a rookie. You're Malik Monk is a better scorers. I no 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 no. I'm asking. Okay okay. So you're telling me, Jer- well, Let's start with Jaron Jackson Jr. versus Demontis Sabonis. Actually, this is a good conversation. I love this conversation, but we are wrapping. We're getting close on time. Um, but you you're, you're telling me Jaron Jackson Jr. potential wise is better. Or worse than Demontis Sabonis. Let's start there. Oh, he's so much better. Not even okay. potential right now. So let's. Jaron Jackson yeah. Jr. is a better. Player. I agree. A completely. But I'm agree. saying as a scorer, the Grizzlies are a better team around Jaw because they have better defense. But I'm saying that De'Aaron Fox has more guys. You're saying he has more scoring around. weapons. If you just look at three point percentage, that it bears it out. That that yeah. De'Aaron Fox okay. is operating with more space than John Morant is that he's operating with more guys the defense has to pay attention to. We just got done doing a 20-minute segment about how Dylan Brooks is holding down the Grizzlies' offense, and yet John Morant still averaged 27 points a game and 8 assists a game on pretty solid efficiency. So So let me ask you a question. I'm taking Ja, but I do want to see how De'Aaron performs the rest of the playoffs, and I do want to see what the Kings' encore is. Not just Look, man, in this playoffs, I'm taking, but next year. Can they get back I, I, to the playoffs? Yeah. I'm taking Fox because I think you can build a more balanced offense around him, and you can put other superstars around him, and it makes sense. I think when you see players like Jaw and you put other superstars around him, they just don't do as well. Um, so that's my thesis on it. I, I, I just think De'Aaron is a more plastic player. You can plug and play him anywhere. He's going to be a solid guy. He's going to be – I think one thing that we didn't talk about, though, is Jaw – has more of a capability to be the face of a franchise, which you touched on, and I take that point. I just think if I'm a guy, I'm an owner, and I want to win championships, I don't care about 45-point games. I don't care about how many jerseys you sell. I want to win championships. I want to bring chips to the city. I'm taking De'Aaron. One one interesting caveat to this is it's usually like a three-pronged discussion because there's a guy emerging in Oklahoma City that has some stake in this conversation in Shea Gilgis-Alexander and how they play. Um... That was a fun conversation. I love that. That was so fun. Um, let's talk about quick takeaways. Awesome. Let's um, let's do some takeaways from each series. Uh, let's go ahead. Bucks Heat. King, what do you got? My biggest takeaway from Bucks Heat, obviously the Heat lead 3-1 after an epic 56-point game. The fourth highest playoff scoring game in NBA history. That just blows my mind by Jimmy Butler last night. My takeaway is that Jimmy Butler is a top five playoff player at this stage in the NBA. He's not a top five player in the NBA because he doesn't do this in the regular season. And this is still uh, a regular season. You know, this is still a league that plays an 82 game regular season. So I'm not going to say he's a first team all NBA guy, but it doesn't really matter because he's a first team all NBA playoffs guy every year. His ability to get his own shot, his ability to elevate his shot making in the playoffs is just un, unrivaled at this point. Um, and 
any team that sees Jimmy Butler in the first round of the playoffs, doesn't matter what seed you are, you're going to be afraid of that guy. And you're just going to have to hope that he doesn't go from, what would they, like 20% three-point shooter in the season to now in the playoffs, he's turned into Steph Curry. You just got to hope that he doesn't go through this very strange thing that happens to him in April and May. You know, some baseball, some baseball writers will, will, or a lot of statisticians will say, you know, momentum doesn't exist. Clutch doesn't exist. Jimmy Butler's him in the clutch. And you really can't say anything about it. The guy put the heat on, on his back. He's led the, them to the uh, finals in multiple years. Now, you know, who looks really bad in the series, the Timberwolves, the Timberwolves look somehow are looking bad in two series because you took a flyer on this guy and you said he's not going to win a championship. And honestly, if the 76ers weren't absolutely handled the uh, nets, then maybe you could say that about them too, but they still have a really good shot at the, at the championship. And, you know, Joel Embiid's MVP regardless. The Timberwolves look terrible, bro. You look, you took a, you took a flyer on this NBA star to make sure cat feelings weren't hurt? Nah, nah. Terrible take. Terrible decision. Jimmy Butler's him. Let's move on. Knicks and Cavs. What do you think, man? My takeaway here is that Jalen Brunson is worth the offseason hype that I thought was way overblown. I'm like, y'all, y'all doing all this about Jalen Brunson? Y'all making him a face of a franchise? Like, this guy was coming off the bench um, for most of his Dallas tenure. But no, he really is that guy. His ability to get his own shot is incredible at 6'2", and without being the type of dynamic athlete that John Morant or De'Aaron Fox is. You know, he's he's just got this array of spin moves in the paint. He's just an incredible mid-range shot maker. Obviously, he can hit it from three. Obviously, he can get to the rim at times, but... He's just got that ability to elevate a team that I think is kind of what you were saying with Darren Fox that goes beyond the counting stats, which, by the way, is what I was saying with John Morant, too. All three of these guys have something intangible that just gives the, puts fear in the other team's heart, this ability to get yeah. into the lane and make things happen. Um, and I didn't really think that was going to be Jalen Brunson, but it is. And on the flip side... A secondary takeaway here is that the Cavs are a lot like the Grizz and that their youth is hurting them in this series. They just don't look ready to to close games. They don't look ready to play efficient offense in the playoffs. So I think Cavs-Grizzlies could be an NBA Finals two years down the road, but both of them have a lot of work to do in the meantime. Yeah, I mean, the the Knicks just seem more ready for to take the next step. Jalen Brunson, Julius Randle, they just seem more well prepared coming into the series. Darius Garland has had, you know, a decently rough go of it. So is Donovan Mitchell. I mean, they've had big games, but it's just them too. I don't think the interior defense is working the way the Cavs really wanted it to. Um, you know, they're still Jared Allen and Evan Mobley are effective defenders, but it's just not working out. And I think it's the testament to how well Jalen Brunson is able to move within that team, right? And this is this was my point about De'Aaron, right? It's like he's a guy, Jalen's a guy that can walk in to any offense and kind of operate effectively, right? I think De'Aaron's the same way. And that's why I think when I say he's more dynamic, I meant more dynamic offensive player overall. And I think Jalen Brunson's that as well. And I think we're seeing that. 
Um, it's also just good that the Knicks are good, man. You know, I, I, I was born in New York City. I used to, you know, Knicks were my the first team I ever followed just because, you know, my dad was a huge Patrick Ewing fan. It's just good that the MSG is crazy live every night and there's like crazy YouTube clips of, of people playing pickup outside of MSG. It's good for the NBA. It's good for me. <laughs> so it's good to see. Um, Sixers, Nets. I let, let, I'll, go, I'll go first on this one. I think Joel Embiid and James Harden do have some good chemistry. I think Tobias Harris is a solid player, and I think they handled a struggling Nets team that probably shouldn't have been there. It will be interesting to see what the next round looks like. I think Joel Embiid has had some durability issues, right? Um, you know, he sprained his knee, I believe, uh, along with Kawhi Leonard. Interesting that they have the same injury. Um, you know, has not been performing all that well. I, what I hope for the Sixers is that Joel Embiid's able to be healthy because that's a big question mark. And he's able to dominate a playoff series like we haven't really seen before. And James Harden, as a recovering Houston Rockets fan, I hope he... <laughs> I usually wish the worst upon him, but I hope he does take the next step too. You know, he's still a guy that can give you 30 every night or some nights. Um, so I, I hope that we see that in the next round for the Sixers. The Nets have a lot of work to do. Hopefully they give us uh, Mikhail Bridges, the Grizzlies, um, to the Grizzlies. That'd be huge. But um, tell, tell me your takeaways on Sixers-Nets. Yeah, my biggest takeaway is that I really hope the Nets want to blow it up and accept that four first-round pick offer for Bridges. But secondary takeaway is Joel Embiid would have been my vote for NBA MVP, um, and it wouldn't have been particularly close just because I think if you're looking at the regular season, he was the best player. He yeah. was um, the most exciting of the three MVP candidates. And so I, I want him to have that playoff success. But based on the three games he played in, he's still got a ways to go in the playoffs. I mean, he's averaging just 20 points per game in the playoffs compared to 33 in the regular season. Last year in the playoffs, he averaged 23 points per game. This is a team that's had early exits in the second round the last two seasons. So... My takeaway is Joel Embiid, for being the MVP that he is, still has something to prove in the playoffs. And maybe this is the yeah. year, similar to Giannis in 2021, where he, where he shows us all. But um, we need to see more from him before we take the Sixers I, I, seriously I talk about, as a contender. I want, to take, I want to talk about one more guy here, and that's Tyrese Maxey. The guy can score. He looks good out there. I love him. I, I loved him since that... Uh, that he had like a mic'd up moment in the rising star game. He just seems like a good dude. I'm glad he's doing well. Love seeing him out there. Love seeing him get buckets. Let's transition. Celtics Hawks. The Celtics look kind of good, man. Uh, go ahead and g- give me some takes on Celtics Hawks. Yeah. My take is that the Celtics have more options than anyone. I just trust them to be able to find a plan to beat anybody in the playoffs. I mean, we saw them beat the Bucks last year in the playoffs. Um, I, I think that they can shut down Joel Embiid too because they have so many good scoring wing-type players. Um, I mean, just right now in the playoffs, they've got five guys averaging double figures. We all know Jason Tatum and Jalen Brown, but I think a lot of people, a lot of Celtics fans, I heard Bill Simmons say this, think that Derek White is really the Celtics' second or third best player. 
at this point, and and he's averaging 17 in this playoffs. Um, they can just beat you in so many different ways. You can have you know Grant Williams barely playing, and then Grant Williams becoming an effective starter in a playoff series. You know you can have Al Horford go from uh, you know seemed like his career was over to now he's this three point sharpshooter and excellent post defender. I I just trust that they can adapt, that they have the adaptability to be anybody in the playoffs. Um, I picked the Bucks to come out of the East before the playoffs, but if I could have a do-over, it would definitely be the Celtics. Yeah, I want to take a quick note on Al Horford. He's a guy that I've loved for a long time, and I've followed his career. Um, 16 seasons for four teams. Now, his his stats in the playoffs are not going to pop off the page, right? He's only getting six minutes – sorry, six points a game. Um, He's playing a lot of minutes. Biggest thing is he's plus 13.2 on average, right? So he's affecting the game in a lot of ways, whether he's stretching the floor – or he's, you know, being that stalwart defensively. I still think he provides a lot of value to the uh, to the Celtics, and I don't think they win this. They go on this championship run, which I think I, I agree with you. I think they're coming out of the East. Um, I don't think they do that without Al. So, you know, shout out to an NBA vet. I I believe that the Grizzlies are missing something like this. A guy who, and, and maybe Stephen Adams when he was on the floor kind of provided this as well. Where maybe not the same dynamic offense where he can make threes and do all that but that kind of veteran presence to kind of cool the game down when it needs to heat the game up when it needs to um so i just wanted to give a special shout out to our guy al uh nuggets wolves i'll take the first one on this one too um shout out to my family in uh virginia big big nuggets fans jamal murray looks like him again. I'm glad he does. That torn Achilles was really, really tough to hear about. He's, he's a good young player and you never want to see that for just a, a, a great player. So, I mean, 40 plus playoff performance, huge, right? Uh, alongside Nikola Jokic, who is in that MVP conversation. I think they're the, I think they're the favorite coming out of the West right now, especially if Jamal Murray can keep this up. Now, one thing I've heard about Achilles injuries in the past is that they can kind of sneak up on a player where they, you know, feel a burst of energy one game and then they kind of feel that Achilles the next game. And it, it, it's a tendon and a, a muscular group that, you know, can can wear out pretty quickly. So um, I hope we can see some consistency. Some of their role players uh, as well have been have been solid. Uh, Bones Highland. Um, so what are your thoughts on, on Nuggets Wolves? Ant has also looked great. Um another solid young player. What are your takeaways for the, for the Nuggets Wolves? Yeah, my takeaway is the Nuggets are the West favorite with this version of Jamal Murray. Um, the Nuggets were the one seed for a reason, but they kind of coasted into the finish, so I lost a little bit of confidence in them um, and thought the Suns would just be impossible to stop. But we'll get to the Suns in a second. I just think that the Nuggets' chemistry and continuity is showing up in the playoffs. The fact that their best players, Jamal Murray, um, Jokic, obviously, Porter and Gordon have played together for a couple seasons, or in, or at least three seasons in uh, Gordon's case, and really for an extended stretch with with Murray and Jokic in particular, um, it just shows on the court out there. They are very comfortable in everything that they're doing. Um, I did see that as they record, they're currently losing to the Timberwolves in Game 5. So, you know, when you listen to this, most likely um, they will have closed out the playoff series, but perhaps the Timberwolves are going to make this thing interesting. 
I just think that the Nuggets have come out with the type of elite offense that carried them to the number one seed, not the coast to the finish line they had in the last month. So, yeah, the, yeah. the, the Nuggets are and, back to being my West favorite as well. And I, I misspoke because I was looking at the planning document. Um, I meant Kentavious Caldwell-Pope. Has looked solid, not Bones Highland. Bones Highland's Clippers. Yeah. Um, sorry about that. I wasn't uh, going to call you out. No, 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 no worries. You should have. Um, he's right now averaging ten points off the bench, huge, um, alongside some some decent rebounding and assists per game numbers. Um, but speaking of Bones Highland, let's move on to the next game, Clippers Suns. Um, I'll let you go first on this one. Yeah, my biggest takeaway is the Suns look a lot more vulnerable and clunky than I expected. They can definitely still win it all, but they've got a little bit of your turn, my turn going on, where it, they need to just make KD the primary focus of this team, the offensive engine of this team. But because he joined them at the trade deadline and barely played, they just don't really know how to do that yet. So it's going to be so interesting to see what I expect to happen in the second round a Nuggets um, Sun series. To see a Nuggets team that is definitively less talented, but infinitely more experienced together, versus a Suns team that has an offensive uh, compilation that you know is almost unrivaled. Like when you look at how good their their top four are on offense, um, from obviously Durant, but also Devin Booker, who was the best player on a team that went to the finals. And then Chris Paul, who has had some moments of looking terrible in the playoffs and has had some moments of looking elite, uh, like the fourth quarter of Game 4 with the Clippers, um, against the Clippers. And then DeAndre Ayton, who is kind of being forgotten about, but is is a very effective post-scorer. I don't know who's stopping them, but at the same time, I don't know if they are going to reach their, their potential, their max in time to face the Nuggets, who are already operating it at their peak efficiency. So that's just going to yeah. be a really interesting series. I, I will say that this, yeah, this both series should feel like foregone conclusions, uh, kind of a gentleman sweep here. Um, I will say this Clippers u- losing Paul George was, was a huge loss for them. Um, I, I think you can't really replace him in, in that system in a, in a really effective way. So I, I think the series was always going to kind of go like this. There's just too much firepower, and they're able to kind of slide past easier competition in the Clippers. I think what we will see in the next round is is a little bit more fireworks. The question I have is, is DeAndre Ayton, like, good enough defensively to handle Jokic? And it's kind of, a quite, kind of something you talked about also. I just think Jokic provides too much. Like, I, this is the theme of the podcast, but he, he provides too much firepower not just in terms of filling it up but assists rebounds not defensively obviously but um he does he just provides too much to that offense and makes them tick in a way that I just don't think the Suns are going to be able to handle um so that I think I agree with you I think the Nuggets come out um last one and I think this is the most exciting one Warriors Kings um what are you seeing in the Warriors Kings. Um, I'm enjoying the Warriors winning. Oh, no, excuse me, the uh, Kings winning. Um, but but go ahead and uh, let me know what you think. Now, we've already gotten, given a lot of love to uh, De'Aaron Fox and frankly to Demonte Jonas, too. So 
I, I don't think that. Hey, I gave love to to Fox too. I think he's a great player. I just think he he doesn't he has not proven it as long as John Morant has, um, or to the same heights. But okay, all of that aside, the Kings have proven even in getting a 2-0 lead in this series that their regular season wasn't a fluke. This is a really good team. At the same time, the Warriors have proven in tying this thing up 2-2 that their regular season didn't really matter, that they still have this championship pedigree, and they're going to be almost impossible to be at home in the playoffs. So obviously, we're Grizzlies fans. We are rooting hard for the Kings. We're rooting for the death and destruction of the Golden State Warriors, and that may well be coming this offseason. But in this series, I don't know. I think I trust the Warriors' experience the way that they closed um, in in Game Four, the way that they responded from that 2-0 deficit to tie this series up, I have more confidence in their ability to get to the finish line here. I hope I'm wrong. I hope that the Kings show up. But you know, when you look at during the regular season, how important Keegan Murray was to the Kings and the way he hasn't really been able to be He's that strong. in the playoffs, except last kind of emblematic of the Grizzlies right now. That it's just hard for a team this young to count on all the guys they could count on the re- in the regular season. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I think it's hard. Keegan Murray, except the last game, had kind of shrunk a little bit. And, and that's to be expected. I, I would say for the Kings, obviously there's still hope left. It's, only, it's a 2-2 series. The thing that you don't want is Clay Thompson to really find a stroke and to really just go on one of those heaters where he's he has that X factor that is just able to take down a whole game. I mean, Steph has that too, but if Clay hits it and Steph is also able to add on to it, they're unbeatable still. And that that's kind of my point for the Grizzlies too. They have a veteran presence to always be in games and always believe that they're in the game, whereas the Grizzlies can sometimes feel like they're not even close to the game. We saw that in the first quarter of game uh, uh, three, right? They just didn't feel like they were in the game at all. No one was able to step up and hit a shot when they needed to. And the Warriors are a pesky, pesky team, right? Anytime these the Kings make a run that's effective and efficient, you see Steph hit him with a three-piece combo and a three-pointer right in someone's eye. And it's just like, there's no defending that. There's no like real answer for that in any sort of way that's sustainable. That's the reason they have as many rings as they do. So... I hope the Kings can pull it out. I think they have the firepower to pull it out. The question becomes, are you able to kind of defend Clay and Steph in a way that limits, because you can't stop them, limits that those three-point runs or those runs that they go on. I think they've done a decent job on Andrew yeah. Wiggins as well. Um, but overall, yeah, I think that's the key to the game is, is making sure Steph and Clay don't get too out of hand. Um, so I think those are all the, the series. I, it was you know, fun to talk about the whole NBA. We are a Grizzlies focused podcast, but the Grizzlies are in the NBA. So we might as well learn something from, from each series. Um, King, I think we should wrap it up there, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, hopefully when we come to you next, the Grizzlies have pushed it to a game six that we have hope once again, and this will once again be a Grizzlies focused podcast, but Expect to see if this Grizzlies series goes as it looks like it's going to go. Expect to see a lot more general NBA content on this feed over the rest of the playoffs. But yeah, that's going to do it 
for us here at the Hoops Royalty Podcast. Coming with, at you live with Royal Hoops takes from the 901. I'm King Jemison alongside Karna Venkatraj. And that's it for us. Go Grizz and have a great night. Go Grizz.